Hi there. Welcome to Nature Spirit, exploring the spirituality of a living world. I'm your host, Priscilla Stuckey. So I'd like to take a lesson today from the Aymara people. The Aymara are an indigenous group from the Andes who have lived and farmed on the high plains for centuries. They experience the past and future differently than most other people do. For us English speakers and for people in most of the world, the past lies behind us and the future lies ahead. But for the Aymara, it's just the opposite. The past lies in front of us for the simple reason that it's the part of time that we can see. We know what's already happened. The future is opaque, as invisible to us as everything behind our backs. So the Aymara, in talking about what happened yesterday or last year or centuries ago, might motion with their arm and their hand ahead of the body. And the future? It's like pointing a thumb backward over your shoulder. I'm thinking about this because, to learn from the Aymara, we need to do some serious facing the past. This most recent month, the month of June, the one right in front of us, showed us some devastating pictures of this country. There were the Supreme Court decisions. The court gutted Roe v. Wade and gave states the rights to make decisions about women's health and bodies and families. The court eroded the ability of the Environmental Protection Agency to do a good job of protecting climate. And the court relaxed gun restrictions, making it likely that more people will die. And all these decisions were based on sloppy arguments. The historian Heather Cox Richardson, who is usually so measured, says they built their arguments on stunningly bad history. She says the court was clearly just working to get the modern-day position it wanted. Also in June, the month right in front of us, we watched hearings from the January 6th committee showing that the former president attempted a coup, that he told lies upon lies about the election and then solicited armed supporters and white nationalists to force Congress to keep him in power and that enough powerful Republicans went along with him that the coup almost succeeded. It is a stunning set of events like no other in American history, a president trying to burn down American institutions to install himself as an autocrat for life. The events of June are related. Just on the face of it, they're related by the huge sums of money that it took to make each of them happen. It's well known that conservative nominees to the Supreme Court are backed by organizations spending hundreds of millions of dollars in promotional campaigns. Dark Money funded the nomination processes of all three of the recent conservative nominees. And with respect to the attempted coup, millions of dollars were raised fraudulently from donors and then paid to the people who plotted it. But in addition to the money, there are even deeper levels of interconnection between these sets of events, and to probe them, we need to go deeper into history. We need to face the past, because a vision from the past is guiding the minority of extremists who are trying to reshape society today. The majority of Americans hold a different vision, 
of a society that is truly plural and democratic, free of authoritarianism. But to get there, we'll need to free ourselves from the death grip of the past. So, I've been immersing myself for a while in the deep past, especially a code of law that took shape more than 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, now part of Iraq. That law code is the first one ever written down that survives to this day. It's the Code of King Ur-Namu, from around 2100 BCE, and it was stamped into wet clay in the Sumerian language using cuneiform. We have only a copy of this code, not the original, and we know it's a copy because clay was the medium used in schools to teach students learning to become scribes. They learned their lessons by copying lists of things onto their wet slab of clay, lists of words and lists of laws. So this particular copy of the law code was likely stamped into clay by a young person learning to write, and learning as well the right order of things by stamping the laws into their own mind and heart. So what does this law code say about justice in the city of Ur under King Ur-Namu? It opens with a prologue that lavishes praise on the king for establishing justice. Mesopotamian kings all had the job of setting up justice because they received it from the god of justice himself, Utu, the sun god. So the prologue says that the king banished malediction, violence, and strife. He established equity in the land. It says that he protected weaker members of society so that the orphan was not delivered up to the rich man, the widow was not delivered up to the mighty man, the man of one shekel only was not delivered up to the man of one mina of silver. You might think from all this language of equity and fairness that the society of Ur was rather egalitarian, but the opposite was actually true. It was a rigidly class-based society where those who owned more land and wealth were socially superior to those who owned less. The poor had to be protected because the rich were in the habit of exploiting them, and at the very bottom of the social hierarchy were slaves, the class of people who by law could not own property at all because they themselves were property. We can see how the law shored up this social order in its very first lines. The Code of Urnamu opens with one simple sentence. If a man commits murder, that man must be killed. And the second sentence, If a man commits robbery, he will be killed. Just two simple lines, but side by side here at the outset, they are stunning. Together they become the pillars of the legal system, two equal pillars. In the eyes of the law, murder and stealing are the same. The penalty for both is death. It tells us that the society of King Urnamu was built on ownership. It was a society that held property so dear that to rob a man was tantamount to murdering him. Taking his possessions equaled taking his life. We know from other sources that people even used the idea of property to think about themselves. People who were lower in status might call themselves slaves of their superiors, even if they, the subordinates, were free citizens. They imagined themselves as being owned by the people higher up. The king at the very top of the hierarchy 
symbolically owned the whole kingdom and all its people. So ownership organized people's day-to-day lives, but it also organized their thinking about their lives. It shaped their imaginations. And ownership defined family relations as well. The city-states of Mesopotamia were rigidly patriarchal, and the father, as head of household, largely owned all the members of the family. Senior wives, junior wives, children, servants, slaves, they were all legally bound by his decisions. In times of famine, parents could legally sell their children into slavery. A daughter was subject first to her father, and when she grew up and married, she became subject instead to her husband. Being married did give a woman certain rights. For example, a married woman could own some kinds of property and pass it down to her daughters and sons as she pleased, but for the most part, her husband was also her master. He owned her life and her body, including her sexuality. So the Code of Urnamu stipulates that a wife who commits adultery will be put to death. Her offense was to steal the property of her husband, namely her own body, and stealing, of course, was a capital crime. A man who owned slaves also owned the right to the first sexual experience of his female slaves, and another line in the Code says that any man who rapes another man's virgin slave must be punished. The harm, to be clear, was thought of as being committed against the male owner and his property rights, not against the assaulted and enslaved woman. The Code of Urnamu, in other words, was written from the perspective of people who own things, namely men, and especially men who were rich enough to own fields and slaves. And each of the offenses named in the Code imagines that offense as a loss of property, whether bodily injury or damage to fields. It's a code that was written to enforce social status. It may have established a certain kind of fairness by limiting punishments and equalizing the laws across the land, but its main concern was to protect what a man owned from being taken away from him. It was a law designed to protect property. Most of the offenses named in the code were punished by paying a certain fine. So one line says that if a man knocks out the eye of another, he is to pay a certain weight of silver. Cutting off a foot required a smaller amount, and knocking out a tooth even less. But all these punishments in shekels and silver show that this was a society that thought in terms of price. Money could compensate for loss. In other words, people could translate justice into numbers. They used money to heal breaches of trust. It's a strange idea, if you think about it, that money can make things right, that justice can be restored through paying a sum of money rather than in some other way, for example, through reconciling people who are hurting. I'm struck by how familiar that system of money punishments feels, as well as how chilling. The social order laid out in the Code of Urnamu persisted for a very long time. The Code itself sounds mature, as if it had been operating already for hundreds of years, and it had been. By the time the young scribe stamped the Code of the King into that slab of wet clay in 2100 BCE, owning things, including owning people, had been the organizing pattern of their society for at least a thousand years. 
We know this because it is documented in writing, and writing in Mesopotamia developed to keep track of property. It's a fascinating story, and I'll only go into it briefly here, how writing arose at the time around 3000 BCE, when the farmers and shepherds who lived in the countryside of Mesopotamia thinned out and populations grew instead inside a few large walled cities. In those cities, the people became members of huge institutional households, maybe hundreds of members to a household if the owner was wealthy or powerful enough. People may have cooked and slept in rooms with their own families, but during the days they worked in communal rooms for the head of the household. Women wove and spun cloth in what we can see from carvings of the time look for all the world like assembly lines. Men were conscripted for fighting wars and tending orchards and building huge public works. King Urnamu himself ordered the building of the enormous ziggurat of Ur, with a platform that survives today, 200 feet long, 150 feet wide, and 100 feet high. And that was just the foundation for the buildings that rose on top of it. In those large institutional households, workers got paid in rations little bowls of grain and oil, slabs of meat, swatches of cloth. It was a huge, factory-like, bureaucratic system. Overseers kept all the provisions in large communal storage rooms that held many jars of grain and oil. So they had to keep track of a lot of details, and they developed writing. Which means that in Mesopotamia, writing developed for accounting to keep track of property. So by the time the Code of Urnamu was written down a thousand years later, that system of owning and distributing food was very, very old. But since the king's law focused on protecting owners from loss of property, that law was able to see and punish certain kinds of stealing and remained completely blind to other kinds. Remember those rations of food and cloth paid to workers? Modern economists have calculated the value of those rations and found that they did not equal the value of the people's labor. So the heads of those institutional households were skimming from their workers, committing wage theft already 4,000 years ago. The city-states of Mesopotamia were built on exploitation. That hierarchy in wealth and status and power remained stable for thousands of years, in part because of laws of inheritance. By law, a family could pass its possessions down to the next generation of family members only. So wealth remained centralized in the hands of the same people, and the system continued intact. It was a system that was stable not only over time, but also over an enormous area of land. Similar laws of property and inheritance and the owning of women and slaves stretched from Mesopotamia in the east to Egypt in the west, a curving length of land called the Fertile Crescent that covers 2,500 miles end-to-end. Though people in local communities along that stretch spoke different languages and wrote different myths and prayed to different gods, they shared the broad outlines of a legal universe— what one ancient Near East scholar calls a legal ontology. It was a legal universe that looked remarkably the same across a vast region for several thousand years. 
And this is the legal universe that still sits in front of us. For we, all the people in westernized societies and white people in particular, have inherited it both directly and indirectly. We received it directly through the texts of the Hebrew Bible, for the ancient Hebrews belonged to that universe. Abraham and his family originated in Mesopotamia, and the ancient Near Eastern template for law and society shows up in the deep stories of the patriarchs in Genesis and in the law codes of Deuteronomy. And we received that universe indirectly as well, for the laws about who gets to own things and make decisions for others passed eventually to the Greeks, who handed it on to the Romans, and through the Roman Empire it spread to Europe and Britain, and in England modern law developed and then got shipped around the world through colonialism. Those ancient laws are the cradle of modern law, as one scholar says. They may be the cradle, but I think of them more like a lead weight dragging down our imagination of what could be. Four thousand years of hierarchy and inequality stretch in front of us to the horizon, and we can't see around this hulking pattern. All of the societies between us and Mesopotamia arranged themselves along the same general pattern of inequality. They gathered authority and power at the top of society in the hands of wealthy men. Think emperors and subjects, feudal lords and serfs, the divine right of kings, the patriarchal family. None of the societies linking us to Mesopotamia challenged those vertical lines of power or untangled the knot of authority at the top. None of them ever separated status from wealth or wealth from authority or authority from gender. To all of them, inequality felt normal. Hierarchies of class and gender were just natural. And in one big way, we Americans added another strand to that tangled knot of wealth, authority, and gender. We added race. In this country, we invested power and authority, not just in wealthy men, but in wealthy white men. We stamped the ancient order, like cuneiform, not just into our hearts and minds, but onto our very bodies. Ideas about who owns and who is owned, of who the law protects and who it prosecutes, are always enmeshed with the color of people's skin. We think of ourselves as so far removed from those ancient peoples, but we started to challenge the hierarchies of power only in the very recent past. Europeans began questioning the divine right of kings only about 400 years ago. In this country, we outlawed slavery less than 200 years ago. And until 50 years ago, it was legal in every state for a man to rape his wife and illegal in most states to terminate a pregnancy. Which is why it's been said often in recent weeks that those who are pushing to outlaw abortion are trying to turn the clock back 50 years. But I think the vision that guides them today comes not from 50 years ago, but from 5,000 we're staring at a hierarchical social order that we've lugged for five millennia down to the present time. That's a tremendous amount of inertia and a very heavy load. Which is why, in many ways, we're only at the start of creating something new. This is not the time for giving up, 
It's a time for refocusing and gathering energy for the next steps. The good news is that every bit helps, and we can start anywhere because all of the unfreedoms are related. So anything a person does to untangle the knot of power helps to extend freedom in every other area. Whether you work for abortion care, or to end dark money in politics, or to increase the rights of disabled people, whether you raise climate awareness or support rights of nature or work for racial equality, whether you aim to end incarceration or you support the rights of LGBTQ people, there is something for everyone to do. And the one thing each of us can do is to work within our own minds to dismantle this picture of power that we've inherited from the past, to uncover in ourselves any lingering belief that wealthy people deserve a higher status or that owners get to make the decisions or that authority naturally looks white or male. We have steeped in inequality for thousands of years, and there is always more that each of us can do to make inequality feel strange instead of normal, to free our own minds from the baggage of the past so we can make room for something better. Because a different world is possible. The Aymara people themselves, who see the past in front of us, have modeled a different social order for many hundreds of years. I've long been inspired by how they refuse to arrange themselves in hierarchies because they say it gets in the way of thriving. It actually hampers people or plants or the earth from regenerating. They see hierarchy as the opposite of affection. So they practice extending love and nurturing to all the members of a community, animals, plants, spirits, people, because they know that love and affection are the only sure ways to promote life. So I was not surprised to find their way of life mentioned in the same article where I read about their unique way of imagining time. The article reports that a white anthropologist, an American woman who lived among the Aymara beginning in the 1950s, found it quite a surprise to arrive in the Andes and discover that the Aymara did not hold a hierarchy of gender. I was suddenly treated as a full person, she says. And now, all these decades later, she feels that her own culture is the one out of step with reality because we're the ones not facing the past. We pretend it's not there, she says, yet we're lugging it with us as we go. So here's to facing the past fully so we can let go of the baggage we've been dragging for thousands of years. Here's to lightening the load and making room for love. In light of 5,000 years of history, we've only begun to taste freedom. We're only getting started. You've been listening to Nature Spirit, a podcast with Priscilla Stuckey. For a transcript of this episode, or if you'd like to read further on the topic, go to my website, priscillastuckey.com, and click on the Nature Spirit link. Or check out my books, Kissed by a Fox and Other Stories of Friendship in Nature, and Tamed by a Bear, Coming Home to Nature Spirit Self, both published by CounterPoint Press. Until next time. Be well and be blessed.